James King is the author of six novels and nine biographies, including books on William Blake, Margaret Lawrence, Jack McClelland, which is what we're here to talk about, Farley Mowat, and Lauren Harris. His biography of Herbert Reed, The Last Modern, was nominated for the Governor General's Literary Award, and Inner Places, about the life of David Milne, received a Hamilton Arts Council Literary Award in 2017. A fellow of the Royal Society of Canada, James lives in Hamilton, Ontario, where we are currently to talk about Jack, A Life with Writers, the story of Jack McClelland. Uh, welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. Just quickly read out uh, the introduction to this book. Esteemed literary biographer James King interviewed Jack McClelland, his family, as well as numerous friends, authors, and publishers, and was given unprecedented access to McClelland's papers and the archives of MS in order to write this lively, captivating biography. Why should we remember Jack McClelland? Well, I, I think he's a great national hero in the way that he um, attempted to preserve and promote our, our culture. I think he realized from the time that he was um, a young man and entered the publishing field uh, following uh, in his father's footsteps, he wanted to do something very, very different uh, from his father because before uh, McClellan himself, before Jack, uh, McClellan and Stewart was uh, basically an agency publisher. Uh, that is, they published uh, books from the United States and Britain. Mm -hmm. They took these in and promoted them in Canada. They were involved uh, with other authors, Canadian authors, such as Lucy Maud Montgomery. But uh, McClellan turned the whole institution around, the firm around, uh, by seeking out uh, Canadian uh, writers of the uh, first quality and what he was very very successful in doing he wasn't successful financially but he was very very successful in publicizing these people and trying as much as he could to make these people household names uh, something that um, really uh, to the extent that he did it had never really been um, been attempted in Canada before. I think that was a real sense of purpose for him wasn't it? It gave him a, his, his life meaning. Well I think I think he had a reason to get up every morning. He was high energy. He went to the office very very early. He stayed late. He tried to uh, spark his um, his staff both at the editorial staff, mm -hmm. and also uh, the sales staff. Very, very good uh, at doing that. And, uh, yeah, dedication. He was born into a life of privilege and had a happy childhood. He did. He was, a, um, I think, uh, a very resourceful, intelligent, uh, gifted child. He could be a scapegrace uh, at certain points, but, but basically uh, a happy life. He was cherished by his parents, got along very well with his sisters, and then when it later subsequently uh, went to university and then he uh, served in the war. And it was when he came out of the service that he really um, uh, took over at, um, at the firm. 
Was he the only boy in the family? Yes. You write that he was a, a, a born leader, but a bad delegator. You know, some people, th their jobs are is to oversee a large enterprise, uh, but they can't help micromanaging. And I think in his case, uh, the micromanaging occurs because it's such a difficult enterprise. He's got to get everything working well, or as well as he can get it working. And so, yeah, I, I think that he would often step in and he would tell the editors how to uh, perform such activities and, uh, you know, uh, give them instructions. But basically, he trusted the people he hired. And of the people I interviewed for the book, now it's many years ago now, when I interviewed them, they all had uh, very, very good uh, memories of Jack. For example, I remember speaking to uh, Patrick, Patrick Crean, mm -hmm. who's now the um, editor, he has his own imprint at uh, HarperCollins. He was responsible or helped get uh, that the last giller for uh, SEA. Both of them. Yeah. They're both of them published by him. And he told me how much uh, he admired Jack mm -hmm. and learned a great deal from him. I mean, I think Jack could be abrupt. I remember in, in talking with him a few times, he could be abrupt with me. I'm used to that as a biographer. Mm -hmm. But basically, very, very cordial, very welcoming, very friendly person. He had a magnetic personality. Well, he was very handsome. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, he had charm mm -hmm. and drive. The instincts of uh, Barnum. That's a very good analogy. Because... Um, if you're going to do something that he was trying to do, you have to know how to sell. And you have to really, you know, like, for example, um, when Sylvia Pre Fraser published her book, her novel, which is to do with, has a Roman setting, he and she uh, were dressed in the appropriate Roman garb. They were uh, driven, uh, I don't know what street it was, on a, in a chariot, and they had various... Uh, young men dressed as centurions or guards, and he was making a splash. And I mean, I think it was wonderful. I think it was a pretty chilly day that day. It was, it? too, yeah, yeah. And for example, uh, someone like um, Margaret Lawrence. Uh, Margaret was a very, very shy person. She loved, well, she never loved writing, but she had to write. And then when he took her up and he uh, promoted her, she was living in England, and he forced her to travel to, to, to Canada and to go on, on tour and to promote her book. And he told her that it was essential that she do something like that. Mm. Now, with somebody like Farley, he didn't have to push him very far because <laughs> Farley, like Jack, was a, was a natural showman. I mean, it's one of the most wonderful things about Farley. He loved to show off. Mm. Farley Mowat, of course. Far yes. Yeah. Then uh, Jack loved to show off. And mm -hmm. I mean, they were great friends. And that, that was a, you know, a very, very long-standing uh, relationship. In fact, the two of them uh, saw swearing as a competition. I guess they did once, yes, yeah. You say in the or, or, oh, right, okay. Well, they certainly knew how to swear. swear. Yeah. I've witnessed both of them. <laughs> yeah, getting back to your point about uh, not just being an agent, but publishing <laughs> Canadian writers, this is what attracted him. 
I think, to publishing. Whereas importing foreign books didn't really attract, didn't appeal to him. No. His approach was that the author was central, and yet this was a recipe for financial disaster? Well, I think it was a recipe for financial disaster because he built up, uh, you know, his, his, once he got going 12, 15 years into his career, he had a very, very large Canadian list. And it's, you can have on the list people like Pierre Burton or Farley Mowat who sell very, very well mm. and deservedly so. And then you have other books um, that don't do so well. And you know from the, from the get-go they're not, but you have to develop a list. And certainly there was at McClellan and Stewart, there still are at most firms, an A list, a B list, or books of those below that, mm. that they publish. I think that he, what he did do, my view, is that he, um, the list became too large and too unmanageable, and the profits that could come from them um, started to subside markedly. And he had a trouble throughout his entire career keeping the, the firm uh, going. And that's why he had to go to the governments and ask for assistance. Mm. And, of course, what he was doing, we're a small population next to the United States. Mm -hmm. A firm in the United States, well, they have, you know, 10 or 11, 12 times the, the market that mm -hmm. we have. Mm -hmm. Plus way more bookstores. Yes, I, I think that was the basic problem. If he had stuck just to, you know, like big name authors like Moet, Lawrence, Atwood, Atwood, mm -hmm. yes, I, I, I think that he would have had greater success. Spread himself too thin, you think? And if he, Absolutely, yeah. So if he'd have just focused on the the ones that I he that were selling and yeah. that were popular, yeah, and and what? How could he focus on that by encouraging him to write more? Or no, what he could have done is he could have taken books in from the states or Britain and done a form of agency publishing with Canadian publishing and joined them. Now in Canada uh, today, the foreign-owned firms, which now include McClellan and Stewart, they publish Canadian titles. But the Canadian titles are a very, very small portion of their enterprises. You, and, in fact, sorry to interrupt, but yeah. you quote some stats from, I think this might be the early 70s, yeah. mm -hmm. where you say that uh, Canadian companies represented 20% of the entire, all of the revenues from the industry, but almost 90% of the Canadian prose and, and uh, poetry books that were published. Well, just to go back to what's happening now. With the multinationals, the McClellan and Stewart, my McClellan and Stewart book is published by a multinational. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now... Knopf, yeah, but... Yeah, okay. Yeah, and... So, what happens there is, yes, they, they provide um, excellent editorial supervision, very good publicity, things like that. But the, the Canadian titles are a very, very small part of what they are doing. Yeah. Because basically what these multinationals want is for the Canadian government to allow them to import their titles from the States and Britain 
and to um, to market them freely in Canada. So they're willing to. This this is the trade-off. The SOP. Yeah, exactly. Well, it is a SOP. Yeah, mm -hmm. you're you're exactly right. Yeah, yeah. And I I think that that is um, that's the nature of the game. Never having worked in the publishing industry, I don't know if another formula would be more successful for them, or they should be able to be for forced them? to... For who? For the multinationals, or mm. forced to comply more. Are, but they, are they forced to uh, publish a certain number of... Is there any, is there any kind of mandatory... I don't know. I don't yeah. know that at the moment, what, mm. what they are required or not required to do. Mm. I remember that, though, when I did publish with, um, with Knopf, and then with HarperCollins Canada, I remember that the various discussions that I was part of, I was always under the impression that they really wanted these books to do well, and they wanted to please uh, the government, which I thought was great. Mm. So that's their position. The largest Canadian firm now is Dundurn. That's who you've been publishing with That's lately. Who they publish my, my biographies of artists. It's a very good firm, as, and there are many other uh, Canadian firms, but they are protected by the government in the sense that they can get subsidies, which mm -hmm. I think is a very, very good idea. Mm -hmm. And so you have these sort of two entities going on. These, are, these Canadian entities are obviously tiny in comparison to... The, the foreign uh, multinationals that are at, you know at, at work here in the country absolutely yeah. they're much smaller but we're jumping ahead a bit sure here. okay so sure. let's let's stay with Jack uh, sure of course until we get to the present Jack shared his father's conviction that publishing was uh, was a belief in and a commitment to Canadian culture but Jack really took that a lot more seriously I think didn't he in the sense that he cultivated authors whereas his father wasn't quite so involved that way no that's true and there were other people in toronto attempting something analogous to jack say at ryerson press mm -hmm. uh lauren pierce but um no jack was the, the one who really really took it on and i think that taking it on was hazardous got a quote from page 26 which you've touched on the physical vastness of vastness of Canada, the existence of few bookstores, the domination of foreign publishers, the lack of good indigenous writers, high production costs, and the lure of educational publishing all conspired against the formation of a made-in-Canada literary book trade. They still do. Yeah. <laughs> still happens. Jack read Social Planning for Canada, which was published in 1935, and it encompassed the entire direction he was to take with M&S. The entire direction he was to take with M&S was in line with the tenets of this book. I don't remember that clearly enough to comment on. Okay. It's called Social Planning for Canada. Well, I, th I think that the idea was is that he wanted to come up with a master plan a paradigm, and he was very, very anxious uh, to do that, and um, he did do it. I think the problem is you have to build a successful infrastructure to do it, and I'm not sure that he was ever able to do it. 
I think the firm was always wobbling. And, you know, he tried to raise money, well, early days from the banks, you know, various other people who would invest. And then he had to go to the government, the federal government, the Ontario government, and, you know, ask them. And they did at various points rescue uh, McClellan and Stewart. His encounter with Gabriel Roy led to a recognition of variations in Canadian culture and spurred determination to become the publisher for all of Canada. Mm -hmm. Yes, well, of course, he, he published um, Roy's novels in translation. Mm -hmm. He promoted her, as he should have, as a great writer. And um, he published other translations of uh, Quebec, Quebec uh, authors. And uh, yeah, it was, a very, it was a universal approach that he took. There's something about her, too. He, he, he fell in love with her in a, in a way. Is that right? She had a very compelling personality. He was quite young when he met her. Yeah, she was very compelling. And I think that he was entranced by her. I wouldn't say he was in love with her, but I would say that he he felt her power. And I think feeling, if you get in touch with a writer like that, and you're a publisher, and you're able to enable that person, publicize that person, that sort of helps galvanize you to find other writers. And for example, later on, you know, he, he publishes um, uh, Lawrence, then, of course, the young Margaret Atwood. And um, he's always uh, looking for this kind of people. And the thing is, is that, that writers inspired him. Mm. He, he loved writers. I remember I, I spoke at length with this with Mordecai Richler. Well, he, I mean, sometimes, you know, Mordecai could be a little bit grumpy. But basically, a very open-hearted, wonderful person... And he, that's the way that he responded to Jack and the way that, it, it, you know, Jack really touched him. So, so Jack is always, you know, he wants to, 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 to really promote these people because what they're doing is really, really important to him. So he, he, he loves Canadian literature. For example, the other great enterprise... Uh, that he got involved with, with Malcolm Ross, which I write about in detail, was the New Canadian Library. And that is a great uh, project because he makes available all these titles. Many, uh, many if not most of them, that, that the, his own company had published. That's correct. But he makes these uh, titles, by la he, he labels them in such a way as he gives them status, and he also makes them available cheaply. And that's very, very important. Yeah. To the university professors right, right, and yeah. students. Yeah. I remember uh, talking to Malcolm about that and how, you know, th th this was a very, very important shared enterprise between the two of them because Ross was equally gifted. And equal I knew Ross uh, from the time when he was at... Um, U of T when I was an undergraduate. I, I knew him then briefly, and then I got to know him much better when I um, was uh, researching my Margaret Lawrence biography. And uh, there was this absolute commitment on both their parts. 
to doing this. Yeah, you talk, just getting back to Gabrielle Roy, uh, you suggest that she, along with uh, Earl Burney, represented the reflective and hypermanic aspects of Jack's personality. I, I Roy is, um, she writes about poverty in Quebec. Yeah. She writes about um, very important issues, which are incredibly important today. Then Bernie is, um, of course, a poet, um, enormously gifted, but a very hyperactive uh, kind of person. Yeah, he exasperated Jack. Yes, he did. Yeah. Richler uh, said, uh, "Jack is one of the few people I could call." with a problem, and he wouldn't respond by telling me his. Well, I think that's the thing. I mean, he would he was burdened. But again, his respect for the writer mm -hmm. and for creativity. And the thing about, about Jack is um, he wasn't a writer. He was a pretty good editor, though, wasn't he? He was. He was really the kind of person who reads somebody's work falls in love with it, talks with that person about the work, makes general suggestions about what can be done. Uh, but the actual editing is done by other people. Mm. And for example, all of Farley Mowat's books were edited actually in uh, Boston by Peter Davison, the poet Peter Davison. And there were certainly some excellent editors at McClellan and Stewart. And what, what Jack would do is when he had taken a writer on, he would then direct that a certain person in the firm to edit that person because he thought they would be wonderful together. Mm. The other thing, though, a lot of the editing was actually done out of, um, out of Canada. I've given you the example of Peter Davison. But, uh, for example, when uh, Margaret Lawrence ran into a lot of problems with the diviners, and the book was a, a mess, the person who put order to the book was uh, Judith uh, Jones, the late Judith Jones at Knopf um, in New York. And what Judith basically did is uh, she told Margaret how to organize the book. And she told me in great detail, I, I talk about this in the Lawrence biography, of uh, what she did. And the interesting thing about Judith Jones is that uh, she basically a fiction, she was a fiction editor, Ann Tyler was one of her people, and I think Updike. But she's also, of course, the great discoverer of, uh, publisher of Julia, Julia Child, which brought in a lot of money to Knopf. But in all of this, she was the person who basically told the very insecure Lawrence you have to cut this out, you have to do this, you have to do that. And Margaret was eternally grateful to her. You did a very good job. So your basic point, he was more what I would call an acquisitions editor. Mm -hmm. uh, he, didn't, he, he didn't do much uh, hands-on uh, editing. He was a devoted father to his authors, offering them his unconditional approbation. Mm -hmm. That's a wonderful thing. And writers often need that, don't they? The thing that a, a writer needs is uh, a strong ego. And, and the way you provide a writer as a publisher with a strong ego is by giving them this kind of love and admiration. And believe me, writers soak that up. They need it. Yeah. 
Well, and Jack had enormous self-confidence, too, and it goes back to his parents thinking he was really special. He was, yeah. He, when I spent time with him, I thought that he was a man who knew who he was. And although when I knew him, he was no longer at McClellan and Stewart. He had, he had left McClellan and Stewart. He had had a career as, um, as an agent. And then when I uh, knew him, he was largely retired. And I think that he was sad uh, about uh, McClellan and Stewart and what had happened and the sale of it. But at the very same time, he had a sense that he had accomplished a lot with his life. And I think, as I mentioned to you before, when my biography of him appeared, he was asked by a lot of, of journalists about it. And he said very, very nice things about the book, which is kind of him. And then he did go to the, um, the Giller. He was on the way to the Giller ceremony, or arrived at the Giller ceremony, when Richler won, and um, he was photographed holding the book. And he saw the book as, in a way, as, as it is, as a celebration of his life. Because my book about him is not a standard biography, and this was by um, arrangement. It is the biography of him as a publisher, and mm -hmm. how, he, how he chose to, to conduct that life. That's why I'm so interested in it because that's really my mission with this podcast is to explore every aspect of the book and of publishing mm -hmm, mm -hmm. specifically. So thank you for writing it. You're very welcome. He had a great line about television replacing bad books, but they'd never be able to replace good books, he said. I'm not sure about that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, television can be pretty good these days, can't it? Yeah, right, exactly, yeah. Yeah, you have uh, Roma, about to be financed by Netflix, about to be shown on Netflix on December 14th, yeah. And that's, a, I'm sure, a very good. I haven't seen it yet, obviously, but I think it's probably going to be very good. Hmm. At the same time he was facing financial difficulty, he published a real money loser, Poetry. Well, I, I'm not up to date with McClellan and Stewart, but until very, very recently, they uh, published poetry. And the, again, that was part of his mandate because uh, poetry ha hardly ever makes money. It's very rare. Uh, yeah, so this is another thing that he does that you know he knows is not going to make, financially enable his firm, but he still does it. And he said that it was important to have a tradition where Canadian poetry found expression in beautiful books. And that's why he produced this beautiful series uh, called the Indian File series over about 10 years, 1948 mm -hmm. to 58. Mm -hmm. And also Frank Neufeld's four, particularly four books that, that he produced early 60s. You see, what I think also, what he, what his mandate was, is yes, he wanted to publish um, fiction. He wanted to publish the nonfiction of Burton, Mowat, Peter C. Newman. You know, th those are money makers. That's good. That kept him afloat. Yeah, but barely. But then he would also like for the um, centennial. He 
He did this series. Mm. He would publish uh, books on Canadian art, Canadian culture, sports. So basically, our entire culture is being covered by him. I remember I w- once being um, at McClellan and Stewart. I was in the waiting room to see, what's his name? Uh, Abby Bennett. Abby Bennett. And the thing is, you see their catalog and then you see the books on display. And you see that the whole thing is Canada. And that was still in play for, for many years after he left. But that is a dangerous enterprise. A very dangerous enterprise, I think. Promoting Canadian culture. Well, because there's a limit to how much the government will give. Mm -hmm. And there's a limit to the number of people who will buy these books. And I think personally in our culture, there are a lot of people who are not interested in it. Who are not interested in what it means. And that it should be kept intact. And, you know, I say I'm an immigrant, so, you know, I, I mean, I, I have Quebecois ancestry, but I, am, I'm, I was born in the States. I didn't come here till I was in my 20s, you know, and I didn't begin to work in Canadian material till about uh, 1995. I think that's accurate. And this I was, think, actually, this was published in, what, 98? Yeah, that might be that might be the date. My I think my Lawrence is ninety six, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so this is kind of a commitment that I made. I'm always amazed at um, well, I, I think in some ways how our culture is disappearing or is in danger. That's and, uh, sorry, sorry to interrupt. Again. Yeah, sure. Yeah, please. I definitely want to talk about that. Right. But I'd like to talk about it once we've finished with Jack's. Life, okay, sure. Yes, of course. Okay. Please, yeah. Jack referred to book jackets as as uh, posters proclaiming the wares within. He also had an adoration for Alfred uh, Knopf. Yes. Mm-hmm. Father he, son kind of thing, or uh, you no, know, he didn't know Knopf that well. But mm. the the thing is this: Blanche and Alfred Knopf were mainstream uh, American publishers. But they differed from a lot of uh, American publishers in that, uh, yes, they did seek out, you know, very notable American authors and cultivate Mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. But they also um, brought in a lot of world literature and had that work translated from Swedish, French, German, they had this destiny, um, and I think it's now been revealed very clearly in the biography of Blanche Knopf, of how much uh, there is this uh, dedication uh, to the idea of culture, which really comes from her, not from her husband. And he, I think, was really emulating the, them in that way. Now, um, Knopf ultimately did not make that much money. They survived because they were bought out by, uh, by uh, Surf, by Random House. But they're very similar firms in that way. But, you know, you consider um, they, br- they bring in translations of Mons, uh, The Magic Mountain. Um, Kafka, I think, early. 
They did Unset, the great Swedish writer. They cultivated, they were, they were very important promoters of Elizabeth Bowen, who is an English author who's, you know, a very, for a very refined uh, audience. And they took enormous risks in doing this. And that's where I see the connection between the two. Although also I think that the, just the quality of production in their books Oh yes, they took great uh, they took great pride in that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As did Jack, no? I would say a bit less so, but yes, definitely. Yeah, mm-hmm. you want to get wares in you know before the public that are attractive and that people want to buy it. Yeah, yeah. definitely. You suggest that uh, you mentioned Bennett Cerf. Uh, he was an influence in this or a role model in the, in in his emphasis on publicity. Well, I met Cerf once uh, when I was a graduate student at Princeton. He came to give a talk. He's very similar to Jack. He was absolutely charming, very, very friendly, very, very talkative, could talk the hind leg off a horse. (laughs) And yet he was a very serious businessman. And I think that's the distinction between him and Jack. I think Cerf was much more a bottom line person. Mm-hmm. Uh, much more wary, um, very careful how he invested. I admire him tremendously. I think that Jack had the chutzpah, but he did not have maybe the steely underbelly that uh, <laughs> Surf had. Surf yeah. is a good businessman. Okay. The other giant in, in, in the publishing world that uh, was an influence is James Lachlan, who wanted to present to difficult, serious poets and, and prose writers to, to the public. Yeah, he, they're, they're very, very similar. I can't remember at the moment. I think, I forget the financial backing, I think, of, of the American is better, though. Than, it is, yeah. It's yeah, I think steel, had, Pittsburgh. That's right. Yeah. I think he had money mm. to do Well, it. he didn't have much money until, I think, the mid-60s. Right, okay. Prior to that, he was uh, shoestring. Yeah, well, you know, there are these people, they come up and, you know, they want to do it. Well, I can talk, I did my first, my latest book is an online book. And we have in Canada now this uh, Art Canada Institute, which is run by Sarah Angel out of Massey College. And, you know, just spend a, a little time with Sarah and she has all the enthusiasm and the know-how in the publicity sense of Jack McClellan in produce in, in Canadian art. She's produced 30, over 30 online books. There's, there's eight, I think six come out every year, I forget now. She did a magnificent job with my Bertram Brooker. And she's doing... All, and to me, she is now the Jack McClellan in Canada. And of the art world? Not she does only Canadian art. Canadian art. But she is a publisher. Publisher of Canadian art books? Art online. biography online. But they are magnificent. You should take a look at them. them. Oh, you should take a look at them. They are wonderful. Bertram uh, Brooker wrote the first Governor General's Award winning book. Exactly. Now, my emphasis is on his art because of the nature of, uh, of, of the ACI, 
Uh, but I certainly take that into account in my biography uh, of him. Hmm. But it's substantial. I mean, if you... Why aren't they published in print? They'd probably be beautiful. Uh, they may. They're thinking of going in that direction. I hope so. Yeah, I hope so too. For Jack, publishing was all about the thrill of the chase, the joy of the discovery. Well, for example, um, as I recount in the book, he came across a short story by Alistair MacLeod. And then he started reading more Alistair MacLeod. And then he contacted MacLeod. And, you know, MacLeod was a very, very shy uh, person. A very warm-hearted, generous person, but shy. And um, he just telephoned him, and they started this relationship, and he published him. And I did discuss this with MacLeod, and Mick MacLeod said, you know, he just approached him out of the blue. He said, you know, I read your stuff, I just love it. And, of course, MacLeod is great writer, Mm -hmm. absolutely great writer. Yeah, yeah, it's this enthusiasm. I think that's the biggest determinant of any kind of success, however you wanted to define yeah, it. I agree with you. Mm-hmm. Jack thought the book world could be brought to order, organized in logical fashion, <laughs> but he was wrong. Completely wrong. The object of his company was to promote a service to Canadian authors. And he was interested in anything that takes the, quote, long-haired solemnity away from the book world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, he, re- he recognized that um, publishing had to be seen as a, a form of media that um, could um, attract public attention. It wasn't, it wasn't enough that you published these books and there were, you know, a few bookstores that, that carried them. He, he was all about, as well as marketing and trying to market. And I think he marketed the hell out of things. Yeah, I think if he couldn't have done it, nobody could have. Yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is Pierre Burton. Other publishers may be charming, but you can't get drunk with them. <laughs> That's very true. <laughs> and when I interviewed Pierre, oh, I thought Pierre was wonderful. There's a book, I don't know if you've read it, I haven't. It's on my list, his biography by a prof out of Carleton University. That's correct, yes, yeah, yeah. I, that appeared after my book, but yes, yeah. when, I, when I interviewed um, Pierre, he had this enormous respect for Jack. And he, he felt that Jack had done, you know, really promoted him and done a lot for him. Mm. And Pierre was a natural. Uh, he was a very good speaker. He, he, uh, he loved to travel. And I mean this in a nice way. He loved to be the center of attention. And he was worth attention. I mean, he was a very mm. interesting man. Well, he and really was larger than life. He was, way. yeah, exactly. Yeah. And he had this, okay, he had this very, he, he, he was very egotistical, mm. but in a wonderful way. And demanding way, too, right? He was, yeah, yeah. And he, and he would tell Jack at certain points, you know, you're not doing enough for me. And I want you to do this or I want you to do that. And Jack would listen to him. 
because he knew that he, he was cut from the same cloth as Pierre. So that was okay, yeah. Didn't he force Jack to fire a PR person and that upset a lot of people in the company? Yes, I think there was that incident, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm. Yeah. Satisfied authors are the best PR. That was a line from Jack. Well, I mean, if you have an author who's who you treated well and, you know, they're going to be interviewed and, you know, they're enthusiastic about their publisher, that, that's, that's important. You, you really want a writer to feel they've been well treated. So when they talk to the press, they're, you know, they're full of enthusiasm. He cultivated the facade of an intellectual yahoo. Well, Jack was a bit of a yahoo. His attention would wander from thing to thing, that, that's for sure. I don't think he would like the word intellectual applied to him, but he was. He was just a very intelligent guy. Yeah, he was rough you, and he, he, was, he was a man's man in that way. He didn't mind being seen that way. Every time you told Jack how well he looked, this is Anna Porter, he immediately said he was dying. I know, I know. And <laughs> I think she's published a recent book. She has, I've interviewed her. Oh, have yeah, you? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, she was delightful when I, when I interviewed her. He did have that. I mean, he, you know, he was struggling. He, he, you know, he had to keep up this appearance. But underneath it, he was worried all the time, you know, mm -hmm. and he had to be. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But he was also full of optimism and curiosity. Yeah, well, curiosity is really one of his most wonderful traits, as it is of any person's. Even though publishing is a lousy gamble. It still is. His warmth and kindness were legendary, which explains the strong sense of community and shared purpose in the company. Mm -hmm. Everyone liked him. I have a great deal in the book about the man who was his second-in-command. Hugh Kane? Yeah. Hugh Kane, that was a very interesting relationship. Because Hugh Kane um, shared Jack's vision, but he was a more temperate person uh, than McClellan. And he tried to curb McClellan, and he wasn't listened to. And that, that was important. I think Hugh Kane, in his own way, was a great man, too. Didn't he leave to take, uh, take over at uh, Macmillan for a while? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he might have come back, I can't, I can't remember. I can't remember that anymore, but I know that there, there were certainly moments of strong disagreement between the two. I think I chronicled some of them. Yeah. yeah. There, there came a point where Jack was just sort of burnt out and uh, tired, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and they eventually sold the company to, uh, to a real estate mogul, uh, mm -hmm. Avi uh, Bennett. And the agreement was for him to stay on a bit longer, but he soon realized that if you have, uh, if you no longer have complete control, you should get out. That's a wise decision. I'd just like to to uh, quote something about foreign influence. It's on page two hundred and thirty-one. This was in the early seventies. Foreign influence has. This is Jack. Foreign influence has seeped into the very marrow of our society. Greed, self-interest, complacency, confused purposes, 
values not introduced perhaps but certainly encouraged by the presence of foreign capital have replaced the self-sacrificing determination that built our country. I think in the main I would agree with that. It's just that Canadian culture, because of our low population, is a very, very difficult thing to support. What I have noticed is that since uh, Trudeau has become Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, yeah. the Liberal government is putting a lot more money into our culture. Yeah, they've doubled the budget of the Canada Council. Yeah. And you see, I think that's because the Liberals realize how important this is and how important it is that we be a self-sustaining uh, country in terms of our culture. And in a lot of the, the trade negotiations with the United States, Trudeau time and again stressed that we could not allow um, our culture to be interfered with in the new trade agreement. And to be honest with you, I think he's put his money where his mouth is in terms of the Canada Council, uh, various other enterprises. Like what? Uh, well, the Social Sciences Humanities Research Council of Canada has had a lot of infusion into its budget the Canada Council, and as soon as you infuse more money into the Canada Council, that money is going to flow to artists and writers, yeah. and the um, you have the publishing program of the Canada Council. I'm sure it has more cash infusion than it had before. And it's about the same, but yeah. Oh, it is? Okay. They, they, the, the, at least they're not cutting it, though. That's right. Mm -hmm. Let's just uh, finish off. Uh, this is a, your very last paragraph in the mm -hmm. book. Uh, mm -hmm. The book is... Jack, A Life with Writers. Jack McClellan's commitment to publishing constitutes the most sustained attempt by a single person to define and enhance Canadian cultural identity. He is our Prospero, the man who shared his love of books with his fellow countrymen. Mm -hmm. He is our Prospero. His legacy is enormous. We remain in his debt. Well, he was like Prospero in The Tempest. Yeah. Um, he's, he was a visionary. But wasn't Prospero banished to an island? He was banished to an island, but then he gets, he has this opportunity for revenge, and then later on he doesn't really take it. I think that when I use the analogy of Prospero, I mean someone who is able to take something like an emotion that is negative and turned it into something positive, which is what happens to Prospero in The Tempest. And I think that he, his gift was in, in our books, in our, you know, in, our, in that legacy. One of my things is that, yes, we, you know, um, now Alice Monroe was not published by, by Jack. I wonder why, did he regret that or did he? Did he... I don't. He was don't... published by uh, Doug Gibson, and wasn't he part yeah. of McConnell's tour? But the yeah. early stuff was Ryerson. Wasn't That's it? right, yeah. yeah. And I don't know the the route there, and mm. I don't know if there's correspondence about that. I don't think there is at McClellan and Stewart. I think she just went a different route. Mm. But the vindication of McClellan 
can be seen in, uh, in the awarding of the Nobel to somebody like Alice Munro, which is a recognition of our culture. Mm. I think nowadays uh, the recognition that Margaret Atwood has justifiably received. I think uh, the way that uh, the, the newest um, Geller Prize winner is being recognized internationally. Yeah. I think that all stems uh, from what he was trying to do. And I think that's where he is a transformer. And I think that what he did ultimately succeeded. Maybe not in the way that he envisioned. But I think there's still a lot of work to do because I see our culture as a very, very, uh, still a very threatened one. And what's really interesting, you know, um, for example, about Lauren Harris, who is one of the greatest of Canadian artists. Lauren Harris was never discovered in the States until uh, Steve Martin, mm -hmm. the comedian and collector, that's how a film on Lauren Harris starts off. It starts off with uh, Steve Martin. It was based on, well... Which is a kind of sad commentary in a sense, because who needs an American to tell us we're good? Well, the thing is, I, I'm a bit disappointed. That film was supposedly based on my Lauren Harris biography, and they paid me the rights to do it. And then... In order to sell it, they, yeah, they use Steve Martin. I think it's disgraceful to do that. I think that sometimes, you know, the, the old adage, we don't recognize something good unless somebody else from the States tells us it's good. And, it's still in effect. Well, look, look at um, nowadays, um, you know, Michael Snow, um, maybe Canada's greatest artist. He's turning 90 this month very much recognized um, in Canada, but not sufficiently in, certainly recognized in Europe as a great artist, but not in the States. Mm. And so we have, we have all these problems. I think, I think McClellan did the best he could do, given, you know, a very difficult situation. My concern is uh, and this is raised in a book by uh, Elaine Dewar. Yes. Called The Handover. It traces the uh, rather disgraceful manner in which McClellan and Stewart falls into the hands of a, a foreign uh, multinational. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think, Jack, in, you quote him in your book as saying at one point he'd rather go bankrupt than let something like that happen. What's the most important publishing asset? that Canada has. It's McClellan and Stewart's backlist, and it's in foreign hands right now. Mm -hmm. Well, I think Dewar's book is excellent, and I think that she, she put into words what I thought was happening at all this uh, bogus um, U of T business. And the, the government, Canadian government, is culpable. Yeah, and I think I mentioned to you before, when I um, met with Avi Bennett, he did answer my questions. There were certain things he wasn't going to say. This is well before this uh, takeover, this maneuver. I asked him some questions that went in that direction because I suspected that was going to happen. And in the interview, in a very charming way, 
he told me that um, if I went in that direction, he would sue me. And I had no need to do what Elaine Dewar has now done. Mm -hmm. She has performed a great service. I could see it happening, and I think Jack knew it was coming as well. I remember my last conversations with him. He felt that. He didn't like Bennett, and Bennett didn't like him. Well, that's well known. I think it's a great, to me, it's a great sadness that this has occurred. It's a, tra it's a, it's a tragedy. I agree. Mm -hmm. That this, this magnificent asset is no longer Canadian-owned. Just, just think it's, it's how he would feel. It's German-owned, isn't it? Yeah. It's not good. Sorry, and it's Canadian establishment and the Canadian government that are both to blame for this. Yeah, I think Dewar has shown that. I, I agree. I think the only good that can come out of it is that um, McClellan and Stewart will promote the new Canadian library. They are doing that. I, I don't know that they are, are they? Yeah, I think they're they're still adding titles, and I think it's readily available. And the whole the whole list. I think it is. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I haven't taught Canadian lit in a number of years, but I'm pretty sure it's it's available. But I I'm not I'm not up to date on the on the current situation in the company, and I couldn't comment um, on that. What I see happening now in Canada is that a press like Dundurn, which when it was founded was largely a press um, by Kirk Howard. When it was founded by Kirk, it, it was a uh, kind of published, um, fairly specialized books to do with Canada, always has been. And then once the McClellan and Stewart withdrew, that firm became much larger. It's a quite a, when, when I first published with them a, num, uh, a number of years ago and was at the offices, um, it had about, I think, eight or nine employees. It's now in a different location and it has at least 20 people. It looks like a major firm inside. And I think that, that his ideas I, I think that he was attempting to do what um, McClellan was attempting to do. And um, if you look at his list now, uh, it's all Canadian, and he publishes novels and uh, nonfiction, and uh, I think he's very, I think the firm is very enterprising. I think it has a lot of strong people working there. I certainly have had excellent editorial um, help there. So um, I think all is not lost. Uh, I agree. I think the same can be said of uh, Biblioasis. Uh, Good firm, yeah. company that published Elaine's book, ECW. Yeah. Uh, and a number of others, but... They um, don't have the big money, though. Exactly. Uh, because a writer now of um, uh, Essie's status yeah. can command a large advance. advance in the marketplace, which these other firms cannot afford. That's yeah. true. Do you have any kind of closing thoughts on, uh, on McClellan and uh, 
publishing today? We've we've sort of covered it, but uh, is there some, anything you've well, said? Well, I think that... I I mean I haven't. I do look up and and read about what's happening in the Canadian publishing industry, and some of it good, some of it bad. I haven't thought as much about Jack in many years as we have uh, this morning, mm. and I think in my con- in our conversation today, uh, you've reanimated uh, my conviction about his greatness, of the gratitude uh, that we we should have uh, for him. I think they should name the National Library after him. That wouldn't be a bad idea at all. Not a bad idea at all. Yeah. Yeah, might be a good idea. Well, let's work toward that goal then. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Good. Good. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Pleasure. I've been speaking to James King, who is the author of six novels and nine biographies. Most recently, the published life of Greg Curnow, but I've also done an online biography of uh, Bertram Brooker. And I have a the uh, the first life of Michael Snow will appear next year. In print, yes, with and Dundurn. With Dundurn, mm-hmm. great. Thanks very much for your time. You're very welcome.